This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Well, brothers and sisters, it's a joy to be here with you this morning uh, to bring God's Word to you. I don't know about you, but I need help this morning, so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray the Lord would give you help too. So would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for gathering us here now before your words to hear from you. Father, we need your help. We know that without you, we can do nothing. So we pray that you would do something, that you would send your spirit, that you would move and work among us. You would help us to see in your word your glory and goodness and grace to us in Jesus Christ. Father, bless this time and bless your word, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how you feel about the church. Do you love the church? Or do you love the idea of the church? Uh, Do you love the people who make up the church? Do you have a sense of union and communion with them? Or do you feel somewhat kind of distant and devoid of fellowship and friendship with the people of God? I wonder, does that oft-quoted ditty about the church pretty much summarize your feelings? It goes something like this. To live above with the saints we love, ah, that is the purest glory. To live below with the saints we know, ah, that is another story. wonder you feel that way. We laugh, we chuckle, because there's a bit of a kernel of truth in it, right? God's people are not always easy to live with, and yet live with them we must. We must because God commands it. We must because God commends it. And deep down, we know there's actually truth and goodness and beauty radiating from the people of God as they display their life together in unity. They honor Him. Well, so that we may better know how to live in love and unity with the people of God, we turn to study Psalm 133 this morning. A psalm delighting in the unity of God's people. If you haven't done so, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Psalm 133. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on uh, page 487, I believe. And you're going to want to have God's Word open this morning because I'm going to point to particular words in God's Word. And that'll help you follow along. It'll help you from uh, being bored. I don't want to be boring and you don't want to be bored. So it'll be good for you to look at God's Word with me together this morning. Now, when you arrive at Psalm 133, you will notice at the top an inscription. The inscription says, A Song of Ascents. This is one of the 15 psalms that Israelite pilgrims would sing as they made their way up to the temple in Jerusalem for one of the three annual feasts. This is ancient Israelite road trip music. Right? This is the ancient Israelite mixtape. If you don't know what a tape is, a cassette tape is, Speak to somebody who looks like they do, and they'll explain it to you. It's a wonderful thing. You can use a pencil to rewind and everything. It's pretty cool. Anyway, these psalms, they were composed at different times in Israel's history, but they were probably eventually compiled uh, as a complete set sometime after the Babylonian captivity. These songs are useful to us because like the ancient Israelite pilgrims, we too are headed somewhere. The ancient Israelite pilgrims, they were headed up to Jerusalem for worship, and we are headed up to heaven. The new Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, where we will see our God face to face. And as we'll learn from Psalm 133, we're headed to heaven together, where we will dwell together forever. In these songs, we learn how to be holy, happy, and heavenly-minded on our journey. You'll also notice that our psalm has an author. The inscription says, of David. 
Let's go ahead and read the rest of the psalm, and then when I get to the end of it, I'm going to say a few words about the setting of the psalm. Follow along now as I read Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord Yahweh has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, we don't know exactly for certain when David wrote this psalm, but it seems very likely that it was written after the kingdom of Israel was finally consolidated under David in 2 Samuel chapter 5. God had moved his people Israel into the land of Canaan. A kingdom had been established under Saul. Saul was the people's choice for king, but David was God's choice. And so David, he was crowned king and waiting by Samuel shortly after that. David was chased into the wilderness where he had to hide from Saul. And after Saul's death, David was anointed the king of Judah. It's kind of the southern territory of Israel at the time. But one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, was made king over the northern portion of Israel in 2 Samuel 2. So a civil war basically ensued for the next two years. In the words of our psalm, these brothers were not dwelling together in unity. Well, when that civil war finally came to a close, the northern tribes of Israel, they came to David. They offered themselves to him in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And when they came to David, they said, Behold, we are your flesh and bone. An expression, we want to be united to you. We're committing ourselves to you. Remember like Adam committed himself to Eve? Behold, this is my flesh and bone. That's what these tribes were saying to David. We're wanting to come under your headship and rule as king and be a single nation. And so after that civil war, we can see how David would be so relieved and delighted and thankful that God brought unity and blessing to the brothers of Israel. So my sense is that Psalm 133 was written after that, after that gracious gift from God. Let's consider again the the glory and goodness of unity from our psalm. It's short, so let me just read it one more time, okay? Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David, behold How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord Yahweh has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Well, this psalm, you see, it opens with a declaration. It gives two illustrations and closes with a commendation, all of which reveal that unity is good and glorious. Beloved, here's the sermon in a sentence. We'll be united up there, so we should be united down here. We'll be united up there in that heavenly new Jerusalem, so we should be united down here. While this psalm has three sections, I think it might be more useful for us to take in kind of the practical lessons of the declaration, the illustrations, and the commendation. They teach us concerning unity. Here's practical lesson number one. Unity is observable. Our psalm begins with an exclamation and declaration. David exclaims, you see that very first word? Behold. This is a word that invites us to look and to see and to marvel at the unity of the people of God. Unity is observable. It is something to marvel at and rejoice in. And we must recognize that unity is something that God creates and cultivates, which is why it's worth beholding. All that God creates and cultivates is worth beholding. 
And unity among God's people, when you think about it, it's like a giant billboard which exclaims that God is present and pouring out his blessings. Both unity and disunity are perceptible and observable. You would be hard-pressed to find something more disastrous to the witness of a local church than division, even division between just two persons in a church. People can tell when a church is divided. There is an atmosphere of distrust. It's thick in the air. People start going out different exits just to make sure they avoid one another. And people can tell and see and observe these things. People can tell when a church is divided, but they can also tell when a church is united in love. Jesus taught us that our unity in love exclaims and proclaims his love. So in John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is perceptible, and it is glorious to behold. Others will know of our love for Christ in part as they behold our unity and love for one another. Christian, can other people behold your unity with the people of God? Do others know that you are even united to the people of God? Are you united to the people of God? Can people behold the fact that you are a member of a Christian church? Are you a member of a Christian church? Do others know, yes, I'm with those people. I'm with the people of University Park Baptist Church. People who are sinners. They have their flaws. Their leaders are fallen and faulty. But they are my brothers and sisters in the Lord. He claimed them, and I'm going to claim them too. I'm with them. Why should you join a local church? Why should you make your unity observable? Why should you unite in membership with a local church? Do something so formal. Well, the short answer is because it tells the truth about who you are in Jesus Christ. That's why you should join a church. For the church, the Bible uses images of a building, a, a body, a household, and a flock. Christians are bricks in the building, necessarily united to one another as bricks. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Christians are members of the body. 1 Corinthians 12. We're like an arm attached to the body. What happens when an arm comes off the body? Well, it is in danger of withering and dying. It needs to be united to thrive. We're like an arm or an eye or a nose or a hand. All are necessary to the body. We're children in God's household. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. We're gathered around God's table, but that necessitates being together. We're all sheep in the flock being led by the good shepherd. John 10, under his under shepherds, pastors. But in order to be a flock, we have to be together, united as one and moving as one. If unity is a sight, a sight to behold, then can others behold your unity with the people of God? Christian, live a life in which others exclaim, Behold, you are united to the people of God. Live a life where your unity with God's people is observable. After David offers this exclamation, Behold, that unity is observable, he makes a declaration. Unity is enjoyable. That's lesson number two from our text. Read verse one again. You see it there? Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Notice those words, good and pleasant. In those words is the idea that unity is excellent and enjoyable. The word good is actually that same word that opens the Bible, that God says repeatedly again and again in Genesis 1, and he creates and he declares that it was good. The word good here can have connotations of being beneficial, favorable, excellent, and even right. In other words, there's even a moral quality to unity. There's a goodness to it. And really, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Unity is not only God-given, but it's an expression of who God is as the triune Godhead. 
We see the goodness of unity in God himself. When we think of the Trinity, we're thinking of the triunity, the unity that exists between the three persons of the Godhead. As the old catechisms remind us, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, same in essence, equal in power and glory. Our triune God is united in plan and purpose and providence. And while the three persons of the Godhead exercise distinct but harmonious offices in creation and redemption, they exercise those offices in perfect unity and harmony. As we see, our triune God will and work and speak in his word. We can't help but see the goodness of unity displayed in him. Just as there is a goodness to unity among the persons of the Godhead, so there is a goodness of unity among the people of God. When the people of God agree, when they are united in mind and heart, when they are united in discernment and devotion and dedication to seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ advance, that is good and right. If unity in the triune Godhead is good, and if such unity is reflected among brothers, it is not only excellent and ethically good, but it is experientially enjoyable. Unity was and is first enjoyed among the three persons of the triune Godhead. So in John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus announces that the Father has loved him as the Son from before the foundation of the world. Not only did the Father love the Son, but the Son loves the Father. Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 31, says this, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And the Holy Spirit, he is the Spirit of love. After all, love is the fruit he bears in the lives of his people. It is because he is filled with love by the most lovely persons in all of the universe, the Father and the Son. Many of you know the pleasantness of unity among the people of God in your own life experience, I'm guessing. I'm guessing that some here have experienced the blessing of being surrounded by a congregation united in love when you were sick, or perhaps lost a loved one, or you were struggling with depression, or you were blessed by a newborn, or perhaps when you were wayward in sin. You've experienced the pleasantness of unity as different members of this church family, I trust, showed you love in different ways. Meals, maybe text messages with scripture, prayer, uh, practical physical help, and more. Many have observed that some things are good, and that other things are pleasant, but rarely is something both good and pleasant. You notice that's the case about unity in our text. It's excellent and enjoyable. And part of what makes unity excellent and enjoyable, a double blessing of pleasure and profit, is that it's not the same thing as uniformity. Do you realize that about unity? Take, for example, our model of the Trinity. The goodness of unity, as we consider the unity in the triune Godhead, is not found in uniformity, right? There are three different and distinct persons. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. We do not collapse the persons of the triune Godhead into one another so that we can no longer tell them apart. The Scriptures never do that. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Instead, unity, especially unity in the triune Godhead, is differing persons dwelling together in harmony. Unity is differing persons expressing their personhood in power for the benefit of creation and for the blessing of redemption. While the love of God is singular, God's love has a fatherly expression from the Father, a saving sympathy from the Son, from the Son, 
and a fruitful joy from the Spirit, coming from the Spirit. And when we are loved by a united church of God, we experience love differently each, uh, from, from each of her members, precisely because her members are different. Right? The lawyers might just love us a little bit differently than the software engineers. The extroverts might just love us a little bit differently than the introverts. The bookworms might just love us a little bit differently than the athletically inclined. And the bakers might just love us differently than the dishwashers. And yet all of these differing expressions of love are pleasant and good and necessary for our own growth in unity and love among God's people. And that gift of a diverse congregation from different backgrounds is a great gift from God when we love one another in Jesus Christ. So, beloved, let me encourage you. When you look around at your fellow church members, you are seeing different ways in which God means for you to know and enjoy his love. We should rejoice that love from our brothers and sisters is not uniform, but married, but varied. Um, That's part of what makes unity excellent and enjoyable. We experience new ways to be loved by our fellow members. And this leads us to the next lesson of our psalm. After an exclamation and a declaration, we have an explication, explaining unity through these various illustrations. Unity is togetherness. This is the third lesson of our psalm. Unity is togetherness. Look at verse 1 again. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The two key words I want you to think about here are those words brothers and dwell. Unity involves a people and a place and people in the same place place. People that our psalm has in mind are the brothers of Israel. While David would certainly agree that um, it's a blessing that the sisters of Israel dwell in unity as well, the reality is that men were the representative heads of the household of the nation of Israel. Where they went, their households went. So women and children were comprehended in their household head. To say that it is good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity is to say that it is good and pleasant when the whole nation dwells in unity. And this is quite striking when you think of the brothers in Israel's history. Just run your mind through some of the brothers that we know in the Old Testament. The first brothers, Cain and Abel, did not dwell in unity. Cain killed Abel. Ishmael and Isaac did not dwell in unity. Ishmael disgraced Isaac. Jacob and Esau did not dwell in unity. Jacob swindled Esau. Joseph and his brothers did not dwell in unity. Joseph was sold into slavery. David and his brothers did not quite dwell in unity. When David turned up to the battlefield, and he heard Goliath shouting down the armies of Israel. David declared that something must be done. And 1 Samuel 17 verse 28 tells us that the anger of David's eldest brother was kindled against him. During David's reign, his sons did not dwell in unity. Absalom murdered Amnon. And then David's son, Adonijah, attempted to steal the kingdom from his son Solomon. The brothers of Israel have a terrible history of dwelling in unity. Brothers, fellow family members, are some of the most difficult people to dwell with in unity. The brothers in Psalm 133 likely has a larger group of people in mind, right? Those who make up the nation. We know that in every nation, unity is difficult to achieve, don't we? Uh, We need not look very far to to see in our own nation, one which we currently dwell in, unity is scarce, right? Sadly, unity is sometimes scarce in a church, too, among the people of God. Why is that so? Why is unity so often scarce? Well, precisely because the brothers in a family, the people in a nation, in a denomination, or in a church, all of those people are sinners, right? We all want to be king of everything. 
The Bible is honest with us about the condition of our hearts. James 1, verses 14 and 15 tell us, but each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then his desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's what happened with Cain and Abel, right? Those two brothers. Consider what James 4, verses 1 and 2 says. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. These are the kinds of people who are dwelling together in unity. Sinners. People like you and me. From time to time, there is selfishness and self-centeredness in our hearts and lives. We want to be king of everything and everyone. We look out for number one. We are like Diotrephes sometimes, who loved to be first, John tells us. Part of how Psalm 133 confronts each one of us is that it reminds us that if we don't have unity with others, with our brothers, our sin and our sinful desires might be part of the problem. Part of why we read from Philippians 2 earlier, right? To give up that place. That's what Jesus did for us. We have to be aware that, that we might be the ones who are forming factions like those in the church had Corinth had done. We might be those unreasonable people like Yodi and Syntyche were in the church in Philippi. When and where we sense separation and disunity among the brethren in our marriages or in our homes, we might be wise to suspect ourselves first. Are we holding on to principle or personal preference? Are we holding on to a particular place, placing ourselves first? Are we holding on to a position? We would do well to remember that according to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 to 19, that among the seven things that the Lord hates, the final one in the list, the one that kind of tops it all off, is one who sows discord among the brothers. And still, What this psalm is teaching us, amazingly, is that unity is possible among people like us, among sinners. The Lord can do a mighty work. Those who are prone to serve themselves and their desires are able to gather together and dwell together in the same place. Note carefully in those words, dwell in unity, the end of verse 1, that the Hebrew word has connotations of sitting down, settling down, and remaining together. And not just that. But this togetherness speaks of a lengthy period of time. David's speaking of a unity that lasts. It goes on. These pilgrim brothers, when they arrive in Jerusalem at the feast, they're about to be together. They're about to sit down at a table and feast and have fellowship with one another. They're going to share life together and to do so in the very same place. This unity and togetherness was beautifully pictured in the life of the early church in Acts chapter 2, wasn't it? So in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, we read, And all who believe were together together. And had all things in common. Two verses later in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, we hear this. And day by day, there's a unity that goes on. Day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. This is the kind of unity that you long for and labor for here at University Park. You want to long for that and labor for that. And that means that you're going to have to stick it out with one another. It means you're going to have to stay when the going gets tough. Or that you'll have to work for unity. Work to maintain your unity and togetherness. And though God creates and cultivates unity through Jesus Christ, that we're united to him and thus united in him, his people are commanded to maintain unity. According to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. That maintenance takes maintenance. It takes work. 
Maybe you treat the church like a family reunion where you share, uh, you turn up and you can just put up with your crazy uncle because you know it's for a limited time only, right? You can put up with your crazy uncle because you know it's just a short period of time. So you can get along. You can do anything for a limited period of time. But that's not actually what David has in mind. He has in mind a unity that lasts, a togetherness that goes on. So yeah, you're going to have to come here and be with your crazy uncle for a longer period of time. You need a togetherness, not just for a couple of hours on one day a week, but a togetherness that goes on throughout the week. And you can't expect others to create the contexts of togetherness for you. Amazon cannot deliver unity to you. You cannot go out and buy it. You have to labor for it. You have to create the context where you come together and seek to cultivate unity with one another. Others can't live the Christian life for you. No, you have to give yourself to following Jesus, being with him and being with his people, finding ways to dwell with him, even when they're difficult. That might mean that you are the creator and cultivator of those contexts, because that's what unity is. It is togetherness. Now, the fourth lesson that our psalm teaches us is this. Unity is diffusive. Unity is diffusive. Now, I recognize that diffusive is not a commonly used word these days, but here's what it means. It simply means to pour out and spread as a fluid. And that's actually what is happening right here in the first illustration of the psalm. In verse 2, you see there that this precious oil is poured out on the head of Aaron, the high priest of Israel, and it runs down on his head, onto his beard, and even on the collar of his priestly robes. It's being diffused all over him. That's the first image we see here, that unity is diffusive. And this happened when Aaron took the office of high priest in Exodus 29 and 30. And everyone watching the anointing of the high priest undoubtedly remembered what it looked like. It, it was a smell and a sight to behold. But don't miss what David is doing. He is illustrating what unity is like. It is pleasant and it is pervasive. The oil had a pleasant smell. It included cinnamon and other sweet ingredients. But the oil also went everywhere on Aaron. Through this illustration, David is saying that unity spreads. In fact, it's what he's saying through the second image as well. If you look at verse 3, we're given this second image, that unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, Mount Hermon was and is the highest mountain in the region. It was known for its heavy precipitation. It was one of the only mountains in the region that was snow-capped from time to time. But here's the thing. Mount Hermon is in the north of Israel, and Zion is in the south of Israel. So David's saying that the dew of Hermon reaches the much smaller mountains of Zion in Jerusalem in the south. It's spreading throughout the whole nation. Unity spreads. It's diffusive. And in this second image, we see that unity is refreshing too, isn't it? Dew and moisture encourage vitality and life. Christian, did you know that your unity can be contagious? When you politely shut down a conversation of gossip in effort to protect your brother or sister's reputation, you're teaching other Christians how to do the same when they are faced with a similar situation. You're showing that you can't divide yourself off as somebody who's different and better and more superior than your brother or sister in the Lord. You're maintaining unity. You're keeping those bonds Together, we're not divided. No, we're united. When you find common ground of agreement in challenging conversation, perhaps on secondary issues, uh, you're helping to cultivate and spread unity among the church family. You know, we disagree on this issue here, 
But actually, there's one point of this conversation I found agreement with. Showing your unity and agreement in that conversation can be helpful and beneficial. Now, to be clear, this does not mean we sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. I think that it was Martin Luther who once said that if you have to choose between unity and truth, hang unity and go with the truth. Now, Luther was very Protestant and always very confident uh, about, uh, well, really everything. Uh, But there it is. Uh, Much like Luther, we need to realize that if we are to have true unity, unity must be in the truth. There's to be unity at all, unity that lasts and spreads. It has to be in the truth. But Christian, here's something you may not realize. You have been anointed and commissioned as God's priest in the kingdom of God. So we prayed about this morning, right? From 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it teaches us that in the sight of God, you are chosen and precious to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You've been anointed with the Spirit in the course of your regeneration, being made alive in Christ. And that Spirit that binds you to Jesus is the same Spirit who binds you to Jesus' people. He is the same Spirit who will enable you to dwell in unity with Jesus' people and to spread unity among Jesus' people. When you spread unity among Jesus' people, you're giving something that our parched souls are often longing for in a world of hostility and strife. You're bringing refreshment and reconciliation. And in doing so, you're obeying the command of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, where Paul writes, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration Comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Unity, as we see here, is diffusive. It spreads. It brings refreshment to our souls. Children, let me encourage you to think about how you can be one who spreads unity. You can spread this truth that we're seeing illustrated here in God's Word. You can be one who encourages peace in your home. Instead of fighting and quarreling over plastic or a seat on the couch or a place in the car or whatever it may be, remember that the person in front of you is far more important than plastic or place. The person in front of you is far more important than plastic or place. Can you let go? Can you consider others more important than yourself like Jesus did? We read earlier from Philippians 2. Can you live in peace and pursue unity in your home. You can with God's help. So ask God for help, for the grace to be one who spreads unity all throughout your home. These illustrations, they they teach us the lesson that unity is diffusive, but they teach us another lesson too. They teach us that unity is from above. That's the next lesson from our text. Unity is from above. Do you see verse 2? You notice the double use of the phrase running down. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. The same Hebrew word for running down actually occurs in verse 3 as well. You see verse 3 there? It says, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls, or could also be translated, it's like the dew of Hermon running down on the mountains of Zion. Those two words, which falls, are the same Hebrew word for um, running down there in verse 3. So three times in this psalm, David says that the blessing of unity is running down upon the people of God. And since he said it three times, David wants us to recognize it clearly, to take note of this phrase. Now imagine you are an Israelite pilgrim. You are singing this ancient Israelite road trip music, and you are going up to Jerusalem. Because whenever you're going to Jerusalem in the Bible, you're always going up to Jerusalem. So you're singing about going up to Jerusalem, and what's coming down? These blessings are coming down down. 
They're running down upon you and the people of God. The precious oil comes from above. The dew of Hermon comes from above. And of course, toward the end of verse 3, we're reminded that the Lord above is the ultimate source of blessing. He's the one who commands the blessing. Beloved, let us always remember this. That when we are longing for unity in our families, in this nation, in our denomination, and among the people of God, in our local church, let us always look to God. Let us look to the one who reigns above. Let us look to the king who came from above to give his unity, give unity to his people below. It's been good for me to pray for the Lord to give unity to his people. I've been praying that for you uh, this past week. You know, some time ago, I was talking with a father who mentioned that his kids are compacted in a very small home. And uh, that sometimes that just a close proximity with one another has been difficult for unity in his first family. Uh, unity and harmony are not always easy. So I urged him to memorize and pray Psalm 133. I told him to pray for God to give the brothers dwelling in his home unity. You should pray for unity in the life of your church. Pray for it regularly. And my guess is that Psalm 133 is a good prayer, not just for our churches, but for our homes, maybe our work environments. This is a wonderful prayer that we can make in so many places that we go. So pray for God to give unity to our homes, this nation, denomination, and your church family. Too often, our first attempts at unity are bathed in our power rather than in prayer. And seeking unity from the source of unity, right, from above, from God himself, is what we need to do. When Jesus longed for unity among his people, do you remember what he did? He prayed. In John 17, Jesus prayed for our unity. He prayed, he appealed to God the Father in John 17, 21, saying this, May all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, united in God. If Jesus wanted unity, so should we. If Jesus prayed for unity, so should we. In fact, Jesus died for our unity. He died to unite us to himself and to one another. And really, that, that unity is from above. It begs the question, are we united to the God above? If we are to have unity with the people of God on earth, do we have unity with God himself, the God of heaven? J.C. Ryle once observed that the true secret of the unity of believers lies in the expression, one in us, from John 17. Christians can only be thoroughly one by being joined at the same time to the one Father and to the one Savior. Then they will be one with one another. So friend, I wonder, and I ask you today, are you one with God and so one with his people? Did you know that naturally you are not united to God? By nature, we are all sinners in rebellion against God, attempting to separate ourselves from God, divide ourselves off from Him, form our own kingdoms, and live under our own rule. The Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. That is what's due to our working in sin. We all deserve to face God's eternal, self-conscious torment forever in hell for our sin. But the good news of the Bible is, is that though we have pushed God away and sought to separate ourselves from him, rejecting unity with him, that he has come to earth in order to reconcile and unite us to himself. He has done that in his son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has put on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus lived the perfect and sinless life that we have not lived. And he died on the cross, bearing the punishment for the sins of all of those 
who have created discord, who created disunity with God, all those who have sinned against God and their fellow man. And three days after his death on the cross, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And so all of those who turn from their sin and their rebellion against God and unite themselves to his Son, to Jesus Christ, by faith, we will be received into glory. They will receive life, eternal life. They will experience union with God and union with God's people and perfect unity in God's glorious place. Friend, I urge you today to stop your war with God. Stop trying to divide yourself off from him and run away from him and instead run to him. Run to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Unite yourself to him in faith. Come to him like those northern tribes came to David and said, Behold, we are your flesh and bone. You have all of us. Go to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, You have all of me. I give my entire life to you and I rest it upon your work, your life and death and resurrection for me. Friend, give yourself up to the Lord Jesus Christ today and come under his good and gracious and gentle rule. If you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, find Travis or Sam or other elders here in the congregation. Find them after the service and tell them that you want to give yourself up to the Lord Jesus Christ today. They'd love to talk to you about that good news. Like those northern tribes came to David, and said, we are your flesh and bone, uniting themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. We should all, day by day, seek to reunite ourselves with our Savior. Christian, each day, go to the Lord Jesus and say, I am yours, use me in your hands, and help me to serve your people with love. Unity is from above, and unity is for eternity. This is the final lesson of our text. Unity is for eternity. I trust you see this lesson in the last words, uh, in the the words of the last verse there, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The words life forevermore show us that David is not merely thinking about the temporal blessings of unity in this life among the people of God. As precious and as pleasant as unity in this life is, David is also thinking about union with God and his people forevermore. But where is this union to be found Where is the there that David speaks about in verse 3? Well, Zion, of course, but not merely Zion is in earthly Jerusalem, but Zion especially is in the heavenly Jerusalem. If David were thinking of Zion as in merely the earthly Jerusalem, as in the place from which he ruled, he would have said here, where he dwelled, not necessarily there. David, like so many Old Testament saints, knew that the earthly blessings that the people of God experienced were but types and shadows of the full reality yet to come. David knew that he and his sons after him were a type of the great and final king who was yet to come. Abraham knew that the promised land of Canaan was but a type and shadow of the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10. The Old Testament saints We're told in Hebrews 11.16, desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. One chapter later, writing to New Testament Christians, the writer to the Hebrews says this, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, 
and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. David and the people of Israel were going up to the earthly Zion, but they carried a hope in their hearts that one day they would go up to that heavenly Mount Zion where they would know perfect unity and life forevermore. You, Christian, should live in preparation for there. So like those ancient Israelite pilgrims, when you come here each Lord's Day, carry in your heart the hope of going there, that glorious home in the New Jerusalem. When you come up here for worship, worship with this congregation, carry that hope in your heart of going up there with that great congregation. What do the scriptures mean by life everlasting or life forevermore as you see it in our text? When the scriptures speak of everlasting life, eternal life, or as our psalm has put it, life forevermore, they're speaking about life of the age to come, age that has no end. Helpfully, Jesus, he gives us his own definition of eternal life. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, life forevermore, consists of knowing God and Jesus. Knowing the scriptures, of course, has connotations of being in relationship with, dwelling with someone. Believers will relate to God in perfect, wonderful love for all eternity. And God will relate to believers in perfect, wonderful love. If this is so, then it is no surprise that we will enjoy perfect love and unity with God's people. While God will command his blessing there, we will echo his blessing with one of our own, for we will be blessed in God and blessing God. We will be those who fall down on our faces and cry in the words of Revelation 19.6, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Life forevermore is life with God, for it is the very blessing that he commands. Matthew Henry put it like this, The blessing which God commands on those that dwell in love is life forevermore. That is the blessing of blessings. Nothing will stop that blessing. Beloved, think about this. Nothing will stop that blessing. Not division, not discord, not even death. For there on that heavenly Mount Zion, sin can never enter in and death is known no more. Beloved, as we conclude, remember that this day, we are preparing for that eternal day when we will sing the praises of our God on the heavenly Mount Zion, and sup with him at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us remember that we are going up to a feast. Let us remember the blessed lessons of unity embedded in this psalm. Unity is perceptible. It's observable. God is pleased to use our loving unity to draw many people to his Son. Unity is enjoyable. It is good and pleasant. So we should strive to live in peace and love with our brothers and sisters. Our unity is characterized by togetherness. So draw near to one another. Be together and with one another. While you live, live with the people of God. Talk and fellowship and feast and read scripture and pray day by day with them. Unity is diffusive. Spread the pleasant goodness of unity to your brothers and sisters. Work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity is from above. So let's plead with God to send it down. Ask God to send it down when you're divided. Ask God to bless your homes, your offices, your, your friends, our nation, denomination, and your local church with unity. 
pray down unity from above. Unity, it's for eternity. We will soon be united in heaven, so we might as well be united on earth. In the words of Mr. Spurgeon, let us love forevermore, and we shall live forevermore. Let us have union with our King and His people from now unto eternity. Let's pray for that now. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray this now. We pray for more of this rare virtue of being united with your people. We pray for love, love that is not fickle but faithful, love that uh, does not come and go but that dwells. We pray uh, that you would give us a spirit of unity, uh, not a spirit that separates and secludes but that dwells together. We pray and ask that you would give us minds that are not eager for debate and division, but for dwelling and cultivating uh, faithfulness and love and hope and joy with one another. Father, we pray and ask for the full power of your spirit to bring about this unity. We pray that it would fall like a, a sacred dew that would rejuvenate and renew and bring rejoicing. Father, we pray and ask that you'd help us to love forevermore and live forevermore. Remind us that we have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. So make us one, we pray. Lord, lead us into this most precious spiritual unity for the sake of your Son and the glory of his name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.